Hello, everyone. Welcome. Welcome to Freedom International live stream. Roy Hartmut Jane and I welcome you all the time and we'll take care of yourselves. And of course, we have the one and only Dr. Peter McCullough. And we're all thank you for being with us. And we just want to remind everyone why we're gathered. We try our best to gather even from a distance so that we can continue to be part of making a difference in our personal lives and in other people's lives in again in personal ways and professional ways and as um, the teachings source teaching says that when one is gathered together one or more is gathered together then the source or god is in the midst so at this moment where we're having so much difficulty in uh, just spreading the truth for our freedom let's have this uh, great gratitude that we can come together and dr mccullough as most of us in this movement is aware is just like us is going through difficult times as well so let me just speak a little bit about who Dr. McCullough is for those who don't know. So those Dr. Peter McCullough is an internist, cardiologist, epidemiologist, managing the cardiovascular complications of both the viral infection and the injuries developing after the COVID-19 vaccine in Dallas, Texas, USA. And he is, I think, the most published, widely published uh, cardiologist who has contributed to many information that each of us should know. And with that, he has published leader in the medical response for the COVID-19 and published uh, the pathophysiological basis and rationale for early outpatient treatment of SARS-CoV-2, COVID-19 infection. And the recent one that he wrote together with his a colleague, with. John Leake is he they both co-authored the book The Courage to Face COVID-19 Preventing Hospitalization and Death While Battling the Biopharmaceutical Complex. So just the title itself, you know that we're we have so much work to do and to be informed to educate ourselves in every step of the way makes a big difference. So Dr. McCullough will tell us more of whatever he's doing now, and we so appreciate your time. Okay, Dr. McCullough, maybe because our audience is concerned, let me start by asking you, how are you doing? How's your family doing? How's your career and everything? Um, yeah, I'm holding up okay. Thanks for having me on the program. I'm Dr. Peter McCullough, as introduced. I'm in practice in Dallas, Texas, internal medicine and cardiology. I'm also an academic scholar, uh, actively researching COVID-19. I have 60 now peer-reviewed publications on the topic, including the two pivotal treatment protocols. Our multi-drug treatment protocol is now copyrighted, the McCullough protocol. But I've been stunned by a recent scandal demonstrating corruption in the vaccine industry. And what's been learned is that a marketing firm, Weber Shandwick, which is the PR firm for Pfizer, picked up the Moderna contract in 2020. They're actually doing public relations work and marketing work for COVID-19 emergency use authorized vaccines, which almost certainly violates at least three drug advertising laws. 
But to make matters worse, Weber Shandwick had an embedded unit within the CDC vaccine uh, and respiratory illnesses office there, an embedded unit. The CDC had actually paid them $53 million. No one knew about this uh, federal award that went to this marketing company for the vaccines. So Senator Rand Paul on October 25th sent a Senate letter to Rochelle Lewinsky demanding an explanation, but it, it gets worse. Uh, we've uncovered that Weber Shandwick had a corporation program. They had infiltrated companies across the United States pushing the vaccines and vaccine mandates. They were working with the American Board of Internal Medicine, the medical boards, probably many of them, with a company called Blackbird AI to target doctors over uh, alleged misinformation. And this is where this comes in for me. I was one of the doctors uh, unfairly targeted by the American board after my Texas Senate testimony. And I've had to go through a, uh, prof a professional review committee where I've answered all the questions. I've cited all the data. They have determined that uh, I should be stripped of my medicine residency and my cardiology fellowship uh, based on COVID misinformation You're okay, doctor. Yes, you're back. I okay. Yeah, for some reason you guys just disappeared for a second. Um, so uh, that uh, you know this determination of misinformation uh, violated every rule of of uh, of procedure, including went ex post facto in time uh, and picked out statements before they even had a policy. Their policy never said what we could say or not say. Uh, they um, uh, did not demonstrate due process. They wouldn't let me attend the meeting or even see a transcript of what happened. They, um, uh, they uh, also didn't demonstrate equal protection. They didn't uh, demonstrate how they chose me as opposed to anyone else uh, there. And then lastly, they produced evidence uh, that, uh, you know, I should have had a chance to respond to to begin with. And they're just picking different parts of the CDC website that we're both using uh, in our statements regarding the pandemic. Um, so I can tell you at this point in time, I'm, I'm deeply disturbed. I think Weber Shandwick uh, should come under state and federal probes for fraud, uh, for uh, uh, illegal advertising and promoting the vaccines, uh, particularly Pfizer and Moderna. I was always wondering, why, why are Pfizer and Moderna the ones that are promoted and we never hear about Janssen or Novavax? Now we know uh, Pfizer and Moderna were promoting these within the CDC. Thank you, Dr. McCullough. Um, I was even surprised that you're still stunned because I thought that would be my question. Is there still anything more that surprises you from all the past two, three years that's been, this has been happening? And uh, it's, it's so per crazy that it never stops. And just like um, you're saying that we want, we, personally, I don't just like it that the public knows the truth, but I wanna see accountability. Because if no, if there's no accountability, this will never stop. So, and in 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 
they what they've been doing as well is that weaponization of the public health so in all the past two three years now it's going to three years this craziest thing that we all haven't seen what are the lessons that we can really pull from that each of us can use as an individual and as uh, different groups of um, health in health practice and then political because they're all intertwined to make them let us feel that they have so much power more than us i think the first lesson learned is uh you know the world health organization and then local you know countries and then local governances uh, uh should never have the autonomy to declare a health emergency never Health emergencies, uh, if they do exist, ought to be declared by doctors, independent of the government. It ought to have a tremendous amount of consensus. They ought to be very short-lived and then reevaluated. What we've had is we've actually had the World Health Organization, and then now, in our case, President Trump and President Biden, independently, without any oversight, um, declare health emergencies. We're under worldwide health emergencies for SARS-CoV-2 or COVID-19 and monkeypox. And because those emergencies are declared, emergency countermeasures uh, also are put into effect without any oversight, without any budgeting or accounting. And this goes on, it appears, forever. And these countermeasures include uh, uh, you know, social distancing, lockdown, masking, um, uh, hospital protocols that are not uh, updated or improved. Uh, include uh, the vaccines, which are not uh, reviewed in terms of safety or, or efficacy. Uh, things are off the rails, and it all starts with the, the declaration of emergency. And so, in my view, the SARS-CoV-2 emergency ended in January 2021 when we had adequate uh, home treatment protocols and had adequate hospital capacity, which had expanded to meet the demand. Uh, the emergency should have been dropped. It shouldn't have been extended for another now two years. In my view, there was never a monkeypox national emergency. Never. Um, uh, you know, our major medical center. I'm aware of one case, and it's easily treated by an oral drug called Ticovirmax. Monkeypox is not spread very easily. It largely uh, got into human human spread through uh, male uh, um, homosexual uh, um, activity. So uh, these declarations of, of of medical emergencies, people ought to view is that they're fraudulent, and they're fraudulent for a reason. It's for governments to to actually take power without any oversight or any voting, or it's really an abrogation of the democratic process altogether. Still, do we still have a chance when it comes to like, uh, um, you know, counter suing or not just counter, like for you it's counter suing, but for all others, like I know Dr. Ren, attorney Renz, has been in the front line as frontline lawyer who's been doing this. We still have chance of that, although we all know that the uh, the judicial system is also infiltrated. You think we still have a chance for that? The court system is corrupt at this point in time. I'm involved as an expert in over a hundred cases. I'm a plaintiff or a defendant in at least a dozen cases. I am not seeing any evidence of fairness. I'm not seeing any evidence of uh, the judges behaving as they should. I think corruption is widespread. What I mean, I mean talking about procedural things like like reading motions and either making a decision yes or no. We're seeing a widespread corruption. 
cases are, are determined not to have standing. They don't move forward. People have, have suffered great consequences, including death, uh, unnecessary hospitalization. They've had their businesses shut down, educational opportunities uh, denied, civil liberties trampled all over, uh, including right to free speech, right to, um, uh, you know, to you know, pursue our, 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 our happiness in our lives. Everything is basically now been stripped away. I think the only court that's open is the court of public opinion. That's the reason why independent media like this is so important. And as far as you being a cardiovascular surgeon and uh, in practice, um, what do you, what's your thoughts in the, the results where the embalmist or when the autopsy release results, you know, they're talking about the microfibers. And then I saw this video that they're like sludge of like really fiber. Um, share your thoughts about that. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a clinical cardiologist, not a surgeon, but I have a lot of experience in cardiac pathology and experience in, in, uh, uh, in, in general autopsy because of um, my participation uh, in a weekly activity at my medical center for many years. So when, when, a, when the human body dies, the blood liquefies and it's easily drained out. That's what morticians uh, do or embalmers. They drain the blood out then they perfuse the body with a preservative solution. What the embalmers noticed among those who were vaccinated is that the blood didn't easily drain out as it normally should. So they started to explore why. And when they opened up blood vessels, they found long rubbery casts that had developed post-mortem. And these casts uh, had an appearance of what's called amyloid. Amyloid is a rubbery substance that can form in the body due to folding of protein. And separately, there's been multiple publications on this, including one uh, with myself as a co-author, demonstrating that the spike protein, which is generated by the vaccines, causes the blood to clot and actually causes the formation of amyloidogenic uh, material within the blood clots, making it a distinct rubbery blood clot. And this fits with what we're seeing clinically because people who develop blood clots after COVID-19 vaccination uh, they don't seem to have a rapid resolution of the blood clots. We have them on blood thinners for a very long time and the blood clots don't seem to go away. I have some patients with more than a year of blood thinning and the blood clots have not gone away. And are you getting more support now for, or growing support from those uh, physicians and you know in the health field that are slowly waking up? It's a one-way street uh, to think about the proportions and who's going to change their mind. 96% of doctors took the vaccines. That's my estimate. And, uh, you know, they didn't ask too many questions. They were frightened or they were told they had to do it. Uh, but there was a lapse in critical thinking. And now so many of these doctors uh, regret it. In, in a Texas A&M survey about, uh, about six months ago, 10% uh, of doctors didn't think the vaccines were safe and effective. And that number almost certainly will grow. We know that the public sentiment is uh, the, the converse of the current CDC vaccine data. The CDC website indicates 90% uh, of Americans are not taking any more vaccines. They don't want them. And I bet those doctors are in that 90%, a large number of them are within 90%. Only 10% of people are still taking vaccines at this point in time. And that number is going to drop 
over time because there's more information that's coming out on the, the side effects, including death after vaccination, as well as the, the lack of efficacy. Vaccines uh, have never been proven to stop COVID-19. Uh, they do not stop transmission. This is all by CDC admission. And there's never been a randomized trial uh, demonstrating that vaccines reduce the primary endpoint of hospitalization and death. It's never been shown. There's, not, there's no valid uh, observational studies in my, in my estimation because none of the studies take into consideration natural immunity and early treatment. Those are the two things that do reduce hospitalization. So at this point in time, there's no uh, medical necessity or clinical indication for COVID-19 vaccination. Many countries agree, by the way. There's some countries that say now no vaccines for people under 30 or under 50. Uh, countries like the UK and, and Israel have, have dropped all vaccine mandates. I think you'll see more of this over time. So there's a one-way street towards those understanding the vaccines are, are not safe and they're not effective. That's good news, and it's good to hear that other countries are really opening their borders for more visits without demanding records of vaccination. And that's why we invite your, our friends or our audience who, if you haven't visited your family members because you were avoiding this man, mandatory, unnecessary vaccine, then, you know, maybe while it is open, go and seize the moment because we always have to be ready when things go crazy again and they put so much fear again. And for all of us who still like easily, um, you know, easily like uh, uh, easily get scared. And we get scared because when we don't know really who we are and what they're saying, that's when we get scared. So for, for Dr. McCullough, before I pass it on to Roy, I just want to say I think that why you were targeted because you were powerful telling the evidence showing the evidence telling the public you may be not the other people who have been doing all these things before but because you are so-called influential now they don't want that but I'm glad you stick through. You're still with us and do take care of yourself. And, uh, you know, hopefully we'll meet you one day. So I'll pass Thank it you. on to Roy. Thanks, Grace. Uh, hi, Peter. Hi. Um, I remember from the, the very start of this, seeing you come out and, you know, it was kind of giving us a bit of support when we see a natural doctor and especially at the Senate as well. Like uh, you mentioned uh, earlier about like paid, paid reviews and stuff like that so you must have kind of realized that by coming out you were kind of cutting off the hand of fidget because you're kind of going against the pharmaceutical industry which you know wants to keep it quiet is that how it kind of went yeah that did bear out i previously was funded by the national institutes of health and by pharmaceutical companies and, uh, you know, when I published my, my pivotal findings on uh, the early treatment of COVID-19, um, and I was a regular contributor in The Hill, uh, which is a widely read journal in Washington, I, I published an op-ed in, in August of 2020. This is before the vaccines. And the title of the op-ed was The Great Gamble of the COVID-19 Vaccine Development Program. I think I was the only public figure to actually question the vaccines in a widely read editorial. The only one, the only one in history, I think. You can't find one in New York Times, Washington Post, anywhere. And uh, what's happened, you're right, over the uh, last uh, three years now, I've been stripped of every NIH committee, 
I've been stripped of all the pharmaceutical um, executive committees and clinical trials. Uh, I've been stripped of two editorships, two professorships. I've had my health system uh, file a lawsuit against me for over a million dollars and that lawsuit will, will not go away. Um, I've now been terminated from two jobs as a, as a senior cardiologist with a perfect track record. And now I've had the American Board of Internal Medicine um, attempting to decertify me, take away my residency and my fellowship. So it's been a clean sweep. And let me tell you this, in my book, Courage to Face COVID-19, I describe most of this in a chapter called The Stripping, because that's what's happened. The unique thing about the stripping though, it's always done uh, by email or certified letter. It, uh, it, there is never any courtesy phone call. There's never a discussion. There's no due process. Uh, so any rules that would be to you know, actually uh, lose a professorship, none of those are followed. And then very importantly, there's never any reason given for why the action is taken. I think it's actually uh, very relevant what you've just said because there's a lot of people trying to tarnish you and they're kind of saying, oh, you were getting kickbacks and all oh, Listen, you're just out there, you're controlled opposition. So it's kind of very relevant what you've said. Regarding, I think it was during the Reagan area, the pharmaceuticals not having uh, any liability for this, but also on the other side of with the kickbacks because a lot of the doctors and hospitals were really pushing this. It was making me sick when I could see friends and family and the doctors actually ringing them to get them to come in to get the, the job, seeing posters where you have pregnant women saying it's safe for them to get the job. Like, is there talks, you know, when you're in the Senate and stuff like that, that that has to change, that pharmaceuticals have no liability? I think no liability uh, that came forward in the 1986 uh, vaccine regulation has been a big part of this. Uh, the vaccine manufacturers and, 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 you know, the constellation involved here is the U.S. military in the research unit called DARPA, the NIH uh, Biological Threats Division called BARDA. You know, they started working on messenger RNA in 2011. It was actually the military that did DARPA. And then later on, uh, Pfizer, Moderna, came forward and, and the other manufacturers. Um, but importantly, you know, the, the vaccines are physically made by defense contractors. So uh, Moderna is made by a company called uh, Resilience. Uh, Pfizer is made by a consortium. And then AstraZeneca and Johnson Johnson are made by the same company, uh, Emergent Biosolutions outside of um, Baltimore. Uh, there's no inspections. Pfizer, Moderna, and the other companies, they don't even get a chance to inspect their products, their own products, because because they're made by these subcontractors. So we don't have any assurances on, on quality, on purity, or safety at all. And I think that's contributing to the awful track record that what we've seen at this point in time. So it's the liability uh, protection, the liability shield has to be lifted. And I think the mechanism by which it'll be lifted is, is, is recognizing fraud. And what's gone on with fraud is if the companies have defrauded America, and they certainly have, uh, Pfizer and Moderna have defrauded America through a public relations marketing firm called Weber Shandwick. Weber Shandwick, it turns out, is part of the IPG group. They're the, one of the largest marketing consortiums in the world. They had infiltrated corporate America, were pushing vaccines within companies. 
they had interlinked with the American Board of Internal Medicine, probably other medical boards to hunt doctors and push vaccines. And then shockingly, it was just found out that Weber Shandwick had an embedded unit within the CDC vaccine division. And, uh, and they had received a, a federal award from CDC for $53 million, but specifically they're promoting Pfizer Moderna vaccines within that unit. So Rand Paul sent Walensky a letter regarding that, um, uh, you know, asking Walensky to explain this. So th this is uh, this is an absolute scandal. I think fraud should lift the um, liability veil. And then those who will be liable will not only be Pfizer, Moderna, Johnson, Johnson, AstraZeneca, and Novavax, but also the, the biodefense contractors, Resilience, uh, Emergent Biosolutions, uh, and others, because they're the ones making the product. And you mentioned this uh, earlier about the courts, how they're corrupt. I've noticed that myself. I've had over 100 court cases, so I've seen it in Ireland. and It's all around the world. And when you see the political party changing and the top judges have to change, that kind of... But the problem between, say, the World Health Organization, the CDC, the FDA, there's no accountability anywhere. And everyone is just getting furious seeing what's going on. And they're just laughing at people. Can you see any light at the end of the tunnel? Because everyone kind of thinks this won't change. The light at the end of the tunnel has to do with public perception. So a New York Times piece in May of 2022 stated that you know 35% of Americans are not going to take uh, the vaccine or take a booster. And now we go all the way to the CDC data where 90% of people are not taking any more vaccines or boosters. So the public now is done with mass vaccination. And I think that's where, where I think that's where people are in trouble. There's no appetite for this. Um, you know, recently we heard the G20 uh, propose and vote unanimously about vaccine passports. President Biden was talking about it yesterday. I think you're going to see a backlash uh, like you've never seen before. And by the way, I think everybody's in trouble, including uh, former President Trump, because he has not come out and come clean on the vaccines as well. And so Biden, Trump. Anybody who's going to stand in support of these vaccines, I think, is going to be un come under tremendous public pressure. Yeah, and just with Trump, because I mean, I, unfortunately, in America, there's people they're either on one side or the other instead of actually having their own sovereignty. But he yeah. was coming out at one stage saying, "Oh, I got natural remedies to be cured," and then on another show, he's coming out saying he's got all the jabs. Then he gets his daughter to do a photo shoot getting jabbed. So you could see the whole lot is just orchestrated. Hey, Roy, Roy, there's a recent video out. You should see it. It's a, it's a famed weatherman, um, Al Roker. Al Roker, is, uh, he's talking to a doctor in New York, and the doctor is telling him the vaccine is perfectly safe, and it's so exciting to get the vaccine. And Al gets the vaccine, and uh, probably he's kept up with all the boosters. Now he's hospitalized with blood clots and pulmonary embolism. I mean, there's case after case of this, people who really are promoting the vaccines and then they get burned with a blood clot. So did um, sportscaster Herb Kirkstreet in college football, uh, Bruce Arians, Tampa Bay uh, Buccaneers. Uh, he, he was strongly promoting the vaccines and all the staff and players took the vaccines. Now he's been hospitalized with myocarditis last month. We had uh, football great Deion Sanders pushing the vaccines on his, his uh, uh, college team and and, and, and doing a lot of virtue signaling. He gets arterial emboli and gets his toes chopped off. Justin Bieber 
was pushing the vaccines, everybody to take the vaccines and go to his concert. Now his face is paralyzed due to Ramsey Hunt syndrome. That's a signature syndrome for the vaccines. You know, it goes on and on. Uh, these public figures, it's becoming so obvious uh, that they're, they're in a sense becoming the laughing stock of this, this vaccine program. Absolutely. And with the actual toxin itself then, because, you know, you mentioned military because DARPA and everything, like, I mean, just from the research that we're seeing and what happened during uh, the COVID, that 5G was being blasted everywhere. Is this a frequency weapon that's been used that they can just turn it on and make people like what, what's your thoughts on that? Yeah, I haven't studied that uh, the 5G part. That's a, a vast part. But I will comment about something that, again, this is we can just stay on the government websites and the published data. Do you know, several years ago, the CDC had a vignette. It was called the zombie apocalypse. I've seen it. Where there was some disease and people spread it to one another and they became zombies. And the only thing that would save them is if they stayed in hiding and waited for a vaccine. Now, the question is, why would the CDC have this on their website? Now, now recently they've taken it down, but we've exposed this on our Substack. I have a Substack I'm writing with John Leake, best-selling true crime author. John wrote it on the zombie apocalypse. It's, our our Substack's called Courageous Discourse. Everybody should sign up for it. It's, a, it's really high quality because John's a best-selling author and I'm doing the medical pieces. But, but why would the CDC do that? Why would the CDC think that... Uh, in fact, people could turn into zombies. Do you know the CDC on their website has a, a disclaimers? They say uh, the vaccines don't have any nano trackers in it. There's no uh, nano circuitry. Like, why do they have that on their website? Y you know, you have to ask the question, um, you know, why does DARPA have on its website uh, the ADEPT P3 program? And DARPA says it, it was developing messenger RNA vaccines since 2011 to handle pandemics. Why do they have this on their website? I, I've exposed this on my Substack as well as on America Out Loud talk radio, McCullough Report. I mean, they're telling us these are military developed vaccines. They, they weren't developed through Operation Warp Speed. When Trump got up there and said, we're developing messenger RNA vaccines at warp speed, didn't he think someone was gonna click messenger RNA and find out the government was developing this since 2011? I mean, I, honestly, I'm astonished at the, either him or the advice that he was getting or Biden's getting. It's it's really, at this point in time, it, it's almost comical. No, definitely. And with, with the PCRs, because one of the things that I found is that they were selling billions of the PCR tests in 2017, 2018, which means this was all orchestrated. But the other thing, through the freedom of information, I've seen it in Ireland and England, and apparently it's in 140 countries, that you cannot isolate COVID. So all of these PCR tests were a lie. You know, this issue of, you know, viruses aren't isolated like bacteria. So there's standard virology techniques to understand the viruses, and they pass it from, in, uh, you know, from cells and tissues that are infected, and then they're, they're, um, uh, they're sequenced, and we can actually, you can actually see the variants on electron microscopy. I have a recent paper on my Substack by uh, Calder and colleagues that shows. So the, the, the viruses definitely exist, um, and, and people have used this, this uh, argument that I, I, that I honestly just doesn't apply to viruses. Just like herpes virus exists, everyone acknowledges that, and chickenpox virus. The SARS-CoV-2 virus exists. Vi vi viruses as infectious agents exist. 
but the PCR technique, uh, it, you know, analyzes for what's called primers. It doesn't do the full genomic sequence. It's looking at typically four primers in different regions. And so it's trying to, to uh, you know, give with some assurity and rapidity uh, detect the presence of the, the uh, genetics of the virus. And uh, as long as the cycle thresholds are kept sufficiently low, if, they, if, I, if the manufacturers would just follow the CDC and keep them at uh, a cycle thresholds of less than 28, we'd be fine. But we've had antigen testing for a long time. And I think just like HIV, we don't rely on the PCR. We always do PCR plus the confirmatory technique. We should be doing PCR plus antigen testing since COVID puts people into restriction, you know, causes different things to happen in the hospitalization. We should never have relied on a high PCR cycle threshold alone to make the determination. And that means hospitals, clinics, doctors, not following the CDC. So it's, so, you know, this is just, people have lost their minds. Absolutely. And just finally, before you pass it over to Jane, like, we've all kind of seen the World Health Organization funded by Gates and all the corruption going on there and even the people running it inside as well. There's a lot of kind of different groups getting together to kind of combat a healthier system with health. Is it that we have too many little pockets of people that can, instead of all rowing in the same boat, that everybody could kind of go, let's step out of the World Health Organization. We know this isn't right. Same with CDC. And that basically the people that have come out and have exposed all this are able to come together and get the support of the people. There are some attempts to do this. I think one of the best is the World Council for Health. They're centered out of Bath, the UK. Uh, they represent about 70 grassroots organizations. I think they're the farthest ahead. They've issued a series of reports. They've had conferences. They've very importantly issued the pharmacovigilance report on the vaccines dated June 11th, 2022, saying that all the vaccines should be pulled off the market. That's the World Council for Health. That's the best document to reference, basically a consensus document. Uh, and then within the United States, we have an alternative healthcare system uh, emerging. I've taken the position as the chief scientific officer. It's called the Wellness Company. And it's going to be available to all Americans, offer access to doctors, prescriptions, in vitro diagnostics, imaging, and uh, giving um, exemptions from vaccination. It's not going to push the vaccines. So I think you're going to see these alternatives grow. It's pretty clear people don't want any more vaccines. Thank you very much, Peter. I'll pass you over to Jane. Hi, Peter. I studied to become a naturopathic doctor and then a homeopath. So I've, I guess I've followed the history of pharmaceutical companies and how they've attempted to destroy homeopaths for decades. And, you know, it gave you a really good dose of skepticism right at the very beginning of all of this. So I started to look much deeper than, you know, than, than most and, I'm I'm a skeptic of any vaccine because I follow, you know, any side effects and 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 there's been plenty over the years and there's been there's been some vaccines that have been completely removed from the market after 40 deaths. So it just blows my mind that this is still continuing. And the other thing that really blows my mind is how they're normalizing some of these 
deaths that are happening, uh, like sudden death syndrome, and, you know, calling it long COVID and this kind of thing. And I know that you have published or you know of uh, some really good studies that have been done on myocarditis showing that it is the, you know, the, the vaccine that's causing it. And you also looked into uh, COVID as being a possible, having any effect on the heart. And that was pretty much dismissed. So if you could maybe just lead us through that. Well, thanks so much for the question. I'm always amazed at how good looking and natural naturopathic doctors are. And so you definitely fit the bill. Um, <laughs> I wasn't surprised at all when you, when you announced your background. Um, what's known is in 1992, Ralph Barrick at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, who was experimenting with beta coronaviruses, he showed in the right dose and the right animal model that beta coronavirus could cause myocarditis. This was known in, since 1992. So when COVID-19 hit, there was an immediate screen for myocarditis that went in the US military, uh, sports teams, uh, the NCAA, and there was an extensive you know, search for myocarditis. And it turns out out of 9,600 athletes in the Big Ten, 1,500 screen, 30% of everybody got COVID. There was a handful of cases by cardiac troponin and MRI, but none of them required hospitalization and none died. It, it appeared to be, fortunately, with the respiratory infection, a very benign uh, illness. And then a paper from Washington University in St. Louis by um, Joy and colleagues uh, did comprehensive imaging and uh, troponin uh, prospectively and found nothing. So I think in the, the community cases uh, that are light, we don't have any worries. So sadly, all these entities dropped their myocarditis screening programs. And then when the vaccines came in, within a few months, uh, there, was, there were explosive cases of myocarditis. Our FDA and CDC held emergency meetings in June of 2021, and they declared that the COVID-19 vaccines could cause myocarditis. This is very important. This, this is not controversial. Our agencies say this, that uh, the vaccines cause it. This is what we've learned. The vaccines are distributed through the body, including the heart. They install the genetic code and the cells produce the spike protein of the virus. That's the injurious part of the virus that causes damage and inflammation in the heart. And when that happens, the heart responds uh, with symptomatic syndromes like chest pain and obvious EKG changes, blood tests, elevated called troponin, uh, positive MRI studies. Some result in heart failure and sudden death within a few days, but many more are, are asymptomatic, what's called subclinical myocarditis, and they form a small scar in the heart, and that becomes the nidus for an abnormal heart rhythm uh, that precipitates sudden cardiac death and cardiac arrest. And it's that asymptomatic subclinical myocarditis that we're very worried about. So these are the important citations I'd want everyone to understand. So Verma in Washington University in St. Louis reported the first case of fatal symptomatic myocarditis and autopsy proven. And then uh, uh, Choi in Korea reported on a 22 year old man who developed chest pain uh, five, uh, five days after taking the second Pfizer shot, he went into a Korean hospital, and they're very good there in South Korea. He died within seven hours. They couldn't save him. And his heart was loaded with inflammation from the vaccine. And then 
Gill and colleagues from uh, Connecticut reported on two boys, 16 and 17, on days three and four after Pfizer. They're found dead at home by their parents. You know, no, no phone call, no opportunity to do CPR. And so this pattern of death, you know, at about 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. in sleep has been observed. Uh, and then uh, uh, what Gill did is he called in pathologists from uh, from Michigan and, and Minnesota at the autopsy, and they concluded it was Pfizer COVID-19 vaccine-induced myocarditis published in Archives of Pathology. So these fatal cases made it clear that the vaccine is uh, can be deadly, proven by autopsy, and then in the best circulation uh, journal that we have uh, in cardiology, the journal circulation, uh, Paton and colleagues published 100 fatal cases in the UK, where number one on the death certificate is vaccine-induced myocarditis. And here about half the cases are with Pfizer and Moderna, but half are with AstraZeneca. So it can happen with adenoviral vaccines. So we now are up to over 200 peer-reviewed papers in the literature on vaccine-induced myocarditis, including fatal cases Recently, Kim and colleagues from Korea published the first case, a non-fatal case with the Novavax vaccine. So we know it can happen with all the vaccines. Uh, and now the two breaking papers are one by Mansugian and colleagues, and then the other by uh, Lepesic and colleagues, both prospective cohort studies where they measure blood tests and all the other studies before the vaccine and then afterwards and what they found in the Mansugian paper, 2.3% are sustaining heart damage. And in Lepesic found 2.8%. So as we sit here today, the best estimate are we have probably 2.5% of people taking the vaccine are suffering heart damage and they're at risk for sudden cardiac death. So what I've said, and a UK cardiologist has said publicly, we actually made a, a small documentary on this, when someone dies of sudden death nowadays, and there's no prior history of heart disease, no antecedent illness, no suicide, no drug overdose, no car accident, they just suddenly die. It is due to the vaccine unless the family comes out and tells us otherwise. If the family comes out and says, no, they, they didn't take the vaccine, we can, you know, we, can, uh, uh, we can remove our concerns. But right now I declare every sudden death is due to the vaccine until the family tells us otherwise. Yeah, and it's it's so interesting, isn't it? Because often families just write it off. They don't even connect the dots. And because it can happen a couple months later, right? So it's, uh, yeah, it's really insidious. Um, and one of the things as a naturopathic doctor that's like a gold standard for us is informed consent. Like, no matter what you give, even if it's vitamin C. <laughs> so the fact that there isn't informed consent of, you know, so people understand the risks when they take this vaccine is mind boggling. And one of the other really insidious things is autoimmune disease. And I heard you speak about that, how there's an ingredient in the vaccine that is causing the body to attack itself. Yeah, well, let me just tackle informed consent first. I, I encourage everybody to, to go on the internet and find the video about famed weatherman Al Roker. Al Roker. So Al is uh, getting his vaccine. He's talking to a doctor, a young doctor in New York, and the doctor's all excited for him to get the vaccine. And the doctor says it's safe and effective. The doctor doesn't say anything about blood clots, heart damage, any other warnings. And 
chances are Al's taken multiple, multiple shots uh, because most of the people in the entertainment industry, uh, you know, are part of a, a vaccine program. And uh, uh, so he clearly on TV does not get informed consent, takes the vaccine, and now it's announced he's in the hospital with blood clot shooting to his lungs. I mean, that's a classic example. The consent form, and by the way, the consent forms for the emergency use authorized vaccines uh, do not give the full safety information. They refer patients to an FAQ, uh, and that FAQ sheet is, is very limited. So it hasn't been updated to indicate fatal myocarditis, fatal blood clots, uh, fatal neurologic syndromes. Uh, I, I think it's, it's, uh, it's gross malfeasance that people, even in the written materials, are not given a fair review of risks and benefits. And to make matters worse, advertising for the vaccines uh, should not be happening. They're emergency use authorized. They're not fully approved. So uh, the companies, either through the PR firm Weber Shandwick or themselves, uh, or the U.S. government are advertising vaccines as safe and effective without disclosing these fatal side effects. Uh, and that's, that's, again, that's gross malfeasance. Uh, recently, the, the state of Kansas has removed all vaccine uh, ads from TV's commercials because they don't, they don't comport with the law that we, uh, you know, that we have right now. So, and then uh, just uh, remind me again on the second part of your, your question. Oh, how autoimmune disease, which is, is very insidious as well, right? It can happen right down the line, yeah. Well, well, you know, I on my podcast, on America Out Loud Talk Radio, McCullough Report, on my podcast, I interviewed Dr. Panagis Polycretus from Italy. And his research suggests that every time the genetic materials are taken up by a human cell, it, the human cells produce spike protein on the cell surface, and then the body attacks its own cell. So there's instant autoimmunity being, uh, you know, underway with each one of these uh, cells that takes up the genetic material. The genetic material, by the way, doesn't digest or go away. A uh, paper from Stanford by Rolkin and colleagues showed it's stuck in lymph nodes for months. It could be forever because it doesn't break down because of this synthetic nucleoside analog cap. We've never had a vaccine that, that potentially stays in the body forever and just accumulates. I think this is very disturbing. And... Um, a paper by Nunez Castilla from Florida Atlantic University found about 30 different sites on the spike protein uh, have homology with human proteins, which is very interesting. And so because of this, the body must recognize certain parts of the spike protein, which is abundantly produced after the vaccine, and then potentially develop autoantibodies. And one of the clearest examples of this is the vaccine-induced thrombotic thrombocytopenic syndrome, VITT, where autoantibodies are formed against platelet factor four. And so this causes a syndrome about two weeks after vaccination where there's a clotting and bleeding that occur at the same time. And it's a horrendous syndrome. Patients have to be hospitalized, multiple transfusions, plasmapheresis, and sadly about 30% of people die with VITT. That's a clear-cut autoimmune syndrome prompted by this massive flooding of the human body with a foreign protein. Yeah, it's serious. And um, my final question is about RSV. I have heard that it's a complication of the vaccine and we know that our immune system is also damaged. So I, I just, like we now hear of kids 
all over getting RSV and not enough beds for them. And, you know, mothers are scared and, and a vaccine will be out shortly is the answer. <laughs> so I wondered if you could comment on that. There's a couple of pediatric groups that have been pushing for President Biden to declare a national RSV emergency. So we could have three simultaneous viral emergencies in the United States. There doesn't appear to be any limit to the hyperbole here. What we know is that uh, since COVID-19 vaccination <coughs> and, and the COVID-19 pandemic response, we've seen a series of unusual things. Uh, about nine months ago, we actually had an adenoviral 41 hepatitis outbreak. And like, where did that come from? And a paper by Aditi and colleagues in Lancet, gastroenterology diseases, uh, surmised that that this adenovirus 41 outbreak was actually due to what's called uh, spike protein super antigen exposure, that children, uh, either themselves through vaccination or through uh, exposure to parents and others, were, were getting so much exposure to the spike protein, it was misdirecting the immune system and then making, making the children vulnerable to adenovirus 41, which is typically a very benign virus. Another leading theory is that the children, because they've been in lockdown for a few years, they haven't had the usual annual viral exposures and, and the normal kind of immune challenges that they have. So it's leaving them vulnerable. So here we are now, nine months later, with the respiratory syncytial virus outbreak. RSV is a single-stranded RNA virus. And uh, you, you know, its, it's predilection is for children under age one. I want people to know that vast majority of cases are children under age one. And uh, it is readily treated with nebulizers. Some simple nebulizers get it to clear up. The average child is in the hospital for less than a day. So you know, any hospital um, concern here on RSV is really a lack of community treatment. If we just get to community treatment more quickly, uh, this will come under control. There are some adult cases. They tend to be in the hospital a couple of days. This is very different than COVID-19, where the average length of stay was over a month. So. Uh, just like the adenoviral uh, 41 hepatitis outbreak, I think the RSV outbreak will, will quickly settle down. Uh, but we do need to get going with nebulizers. There are some advanced treatments. There's a monoclonal antibody for severe cases. We can use ribavirin and, or uh, an older antiviral. And then data, two different societies are split on the use of uh, corticosteroids. Um, but you know, a, a, a usual approach would be to use inhaled budesonide, which we'd use for COVID anyway. So, um, so that's what we have with RSV, um, but, but I think it's probably related in some way to this mass exposure we've had of COVID spike protein through the respiratory illness or through vaccination or through exposure to those vaccinated. Yeah, I don't know where to even unpack that, but I know that early treatment is paramount. It's very important and it's, I always try to explain to patients that if you can, you know, it's much easier to turn a small car than it is a giant truck. And so let's get to it, you know, early on. And most diseases only train our immune system and make us stronger. And if you treat it properly at the beginning, there really isn't a threat. But that's uh, my final comment before. Well, let me follow that up with just a quick comment. Uh, for respiratory syncytial virus, the flu, or COVID, uh, you know, the best first step is actually to do virucidal nasal washes and gargles. 
Yeah. Uh, which can be done. So dilute povidone iodine, dilute hydrogen peroxide, spray it up the nose, sniff it back, spit it out, do it twice on each side, gargle with it. Uh, and, and uh, you know, probably children beyond, I want to say beyond age eight can do that. Um, uh, we certainly, you can even nebulize um, hydrogen peroxide, very dilute, and that's perfectly safe to do. Uh, but, you know, on America Out Loud uh, Talk Radio, we had an expert on Nate Jones, and he reviewed all the data. I was shocked to understand, do you know that dilute baby shampoo is virucidal? There takes almost nothing to stop. It, ta- it takes very little to stop these viruses. The mistake is to let the virus kind of brew up in the nasal passages or the throat for days and not do anything about it. Yeah. Um, and, and that's what the typical person does. So I've learned to be very aggressive with the nasal washes and gargles. Right, and we've been kind of programmed out of doing our own first steps, right? So we let it brew instead of getting to it ourselves and being proactive. So I I love your comments. Thank you so much. I'm gonna pass you to Hartman. Hello, Dr. Peter, thank you for being here. It's it's a real pleasure and um, I want to go uh, back to the uh, excess mortality rate um because i'm um, i get the newsletters from peter halligan and uh, peter halligan is a financial analyst and he has taken the reports from the vares and ordra data and he made an estimation and he wrote for example in one of his last messages the following somewhere between 9 million and 45 million deaths with somewhere between 850 million and 4.2 billion adverse multiple injuries per persons. This is what the new estimation is, in his opinion, as financial analysts. And then he wrote, then he made also an estimation concerning the death rate concerning the um, vaccinations. And he says in his last message, AstraZeneca and Johnson & Johnson are both viral vector vaccines compared to Pfizer they are four to five times more deadly than the already deadly Pfizer-BioNTech mRNA injections. The same four and five times worse ratio applies to AstraZeneca against Moderna and Pfizer-BioNTech for adverse events. Do you have any comment on that? Do you do you have any? Well, there's you know there's a lot there. Let's just take the comparative analyses of safety of the vaccines. Everyone's frustrated that governments have not told us what's the safest vaccine and what's the most dangerous vaccine. You know, we're we're two years into the vaccine program and the governments don't seem to care which vaccine is used, which I think is very unusual. By this time, you know, there's a winner, there's a loser, one's in between. And, and the governments don't seem to care about comparative efficacy or safety. What we know is in two papers, on myocarditis that Moderna, which is three times the dose of messenger RNA of Pfizer, Moderna is more dangerous and there is more myocarditis with Moderna. So I think that's subtle. On the blood clots, AstraZeneca and Johnson & Johnson had the early warnings on blood clots. And to this day in the peer reviewed literature, uh, Moderna or uh, AstraZeneca and Janssen, Janssen, which is Johnson & Johnson, uh, in my view, do have a greater proclivity for blood clotting, but Pfizer Moderna caused blood clots as well. 
Uh, one paper I'd point to is a paper by Dag Burhild and colleagues published in JAMA, three small Nordic countries. You'll be astounded with this. 7,750 neurologically devastating strokes or blood clots in the brain. With, and, and, and there it was Pfizer, Moderna or AstraZeneca. And they carefully ruled out the superimposed effect of the respiratory illness. So these are people who did not have COVID-19. That is a staggering number. And as pointed out, normally there's a handful of these and they'd be pulled off the market. That's a staggering number of neurologically devastating um, uh, strokes. And you know some do go on to die. Now the all-cause mortality data, I think are the most concerning. That's the reason why the World Council for Health has called for all the vaccines to be pulled off the market. What we know in all the safety databases that exist, there's under-reporting. In our system, the US VAERS system, 86% uh, of the reports are done by doctors, nurses, coroners, uh, vaccine workers at the injection centers where they think the vaccine caused the death. Uh, there's a video trending right now uh, in Israel of a teenager who dies right in the vaccine center and it's filmed right there. Um, you know, I, I would imagine the workers fill out the death form right there. It's obvious uh, that it's happened right in front of them. But in the United States right now, among Americans, our U.S. vaccine adverse event reporting system is confirming 15,000 Americans have died after the vaccine. And in that reporting system, the way it's, you know, because it's, it's thought to do with the vaccine, about 96% of the cases are within 48 hours. It's a relatively immediate death. Again, five, usually 5, 10, no more than 50, they should be off the market. Pfizer knew about 1,223 deaths in the court-ordered dossier they had to release to the public. Pfizer knew about that within 90 days. The stunning thing is that neither the manufacturer nor the FDA has uh, made any moves to pull these off the market. They actually haven't even provided any commentary on, uh, on the astronomical numbers of deaths. One of the questions is, what's the under-reporting? And through FDA testimony by Wise, analyses by Rose and others, by three different sources, uh, the estimate that I'm relying on is coming in on death at about 30. Meaning, if we're at 15,000 deaths, uh, that's a that, you know that's a one thirtieth of what's happened. That means that the real number is 450,000 Americans have died. So, if if due to the vaccines uh, or complications of the vaccine. So, if we were to summarize. Uh, with COVID-19 respiratory illness, we had 250,000 deaths before the vaccines due to the respiratory illness. We had 750,000 deaths after the vaccines came into use due to the respiratory illness, now tack on potentially another 450,000 deaths due to the vaccine. That's enough death to start to move the needle on uh, life insurances. And every life insurance company in the United States among employed workers, which are typically younger workers for large companies, is reporting record numbers of life insurance claims. Lincoln National recently a 63% increase in life insurance claims. This is considered a cataclysmic, more than a 10% change is considered well beyond any boundaries of, of confidence of normal. We're in an abnormal state now of a massive number of deaths. And uh, the, the uh, confusing issue is going to be most people taking the vaccines have already had COVID and they didn't need to take the vaccines and they keep taking more vaccines typically for work or school or travel reasons. And so now there's an intermingling of COVID as an exposure and of the vaccines as an exposure and the net result is death. 
The only control group here is going to be people who have wisely not taken the vaccines. Uh, and, and, you know, we'd have to study the patterns of death in, in that group. Um, in UK, there are data uh, which were exposed and uh, it shows the children and the children, I don't know the age anymore, um, but six, if the children were not vaccinated, only six children of 100,000 died. When they had one shot, 48 of 100,000 died. And when they had three shots, it was 289. So we had an increase of 400% on the children. And this is the reason why the UK government um, took it off and they said, okay, no children get the vaccination or needs to get the vaccination. And in Germany, they make the big uh, advertisement concerning it's the children vaccination. It, it's true. You're, what you're referring to is the Office of National Statistics in the UK. And what you've given is, is precisely accurate. Uh, there is a dose dependency. It appears as if the more doses that are taken, the higher the number of deaths. And it's, it's greatly concerning. In, in this age group, there's no other confounder. There's, there's no other um, uh, smoking gun here outside of COVID-19 vaccination, which is known to cause uh, myocarditis, which is fatal, blood clots that are fatal. And of course, there's the immediate fatal allergic reactions. Yeah. And in Germany, we had, for example, in uh, the uh, excess mortality rate in, in Germany in October 2022 was 19%. This is very high. This is higher than in the World War II. Well, 19% excess mortality in a general population is enough to actually reduce calculated life expectancy. And I think what we're going to see is we're going to see life expectancy go down all over. And in the original analysis by McLachlan and colleagues from Queens, early on in the VAERS system from April of 2021, McLachlan reported that the people who were dying of the vaccine were seniors. So even though we see young people dying on the athletic field, people have taken the vaccine, developing fatal blood clots, you know, these visible public cases, what we're not seeing is our senior citizens dying probably a few months or a few years prematurely. And those are those numbers are should, you know are occurring in in much larger, uh, larger um, overall uh, crude um, population crude population numbers, and I think they're relatively concealed. Well, I, what I was wondering the whole time is why are, why are the vaccinations so forced in let's say national institutions like for example in the healthcare system, in the military, in the police. Firemen, uh, they all needed, they were forced to take the vaccinations. And I think there is also a high mortality in the hospitals with respect to the doctors and the nurses. Do you have any comment on that? It's true. It, it appears uh, as if the vaccines are given, certainly not based on need. Uh, you know, the only theoretical need would be in, in senior citizens, the elderly, those living in congregate settings like nursing homes or those uh, who basically are invalids, uh, they would be the highest risk. But to force the vaccine on a healthy military, uh, most of whom have already had the illness, uh, you know, in children, their CDC says 86% of people have already had the illness. Once somebody's already had the illness, there is a negligible chance they'd ever be hospitalized or die with a second illness. We, uh, in a paper by Chin and colleagues in New England Journal of Medicine, October of 2022, 59,000 prisoners 17,000 staff, second infections, 
basically 0% chance of hospitalization and death. So there should be, there's no medical necessity, no clinical indication, but yet this uh, continued forced vaccination, I think it goes back to the military origins of the vaccines. All the emergency use authorized products have always been for the military. We've never had an EUA product for the public and the military developed it. I mean, the DARPA on this website saying, you know, we developed this in 2011 going forward, uh, you know, as a, as a biological threat, as well as an answer to the threat in the vaccine of monoclonal antibodies. So um, I think it's the military nature of this. When, when the vaccines were announced, they were announced by Health and Human Services, Alex Azar in the United States, and then by our Department of Defense. The pharmaceutical companies are basically like marketing shields. Uh, but this is essentially a government military operation worldwide. And it's clear, you can see it in China, they use the Sinovac, Coronavac, which they do in South America. Uh, but but it, it has a military flavor to it. And because of that, that's the reason why big institutions, the military, the police, et cetera. I, I want to uh, have, a, have a comment to this. Uh, in the, on YouTube, um, you can find in a lesson or yeah, a teaching of Dr. Charles Morgan, a psychoneurobiologist uh, and war spe a speaker, a war specialist, who gave a lesson to the, what is called, uh, the West Point Academy concerning this subject. And it's very interesting how they, how the military wanted to use this vaccination in their purpose. For example, reducing specific races, changing the mind system, the mindset by, by frequency so that they get, that they are really mind controlled, that they can delete memory, etc. Is everything is said in this Video from 2018. It's unbelievable. Yeah. Uh, you know, I haven't analyzed it. All I can say is that uh, the vaccines must be weakening our military, I think, by, by two mechanisms. One is that uh, because the vaccines cause damage, you know, in a Zogby survey, valid survey in the United States, 15% of people take the vaccine have some new disease or medical problem. That means 15% of the military is now you know, having medical issues. Sadly, some are disabled. And uh, the second way it weakens the military is uh, because, you know, the people who don't want the vaccines, our soldiers and staff, they're being forced to take it. So they're mentally broken. It's like someone being in, uh, in a prison camp and then they're forced to undergo uh, something to their body that they don't want to have done. Um, so these two features must be weakening militaries all over the world. Yes. Definitely, and uh, and um, the point is that we don't. If you see the psychological damages as well, so um, if you want to force eight million people to take the vaccination, you need to destroy them psychological. You need to destroy their will. Yeah, and in in Germany, for example, we have here. Since uh, the 1st October, we have the right that the military can also support the government within Germany. This is very new. It was never before. And uh, on the other hand, uh, our temperature in the houses will be decreased so that the people gets, uh, get ill. And on the other hand, they have vaccinated and their immune system is, is, uh, is uh, yeah, let's say it's damaged. 
So we think that there something uh, very big will happen when the, the 19% uh, excess uh, mortality rate is maybe only the beginning. You know, let's pick up on the issue of mental illness. There's a report out of Canada uh, indicating that uh, if patients decline the vaccine, the doctor should try to treat them with psychiatric drugs, uh, I, I guess, to kind of soften up the mind to accept the vaccine. And then there's the report of uh, Dr. Bender, I believe, from Switzerland, who uh, has been incarcerated for speaking out against the vaccines. And uh, he was uh, sent for, again, psychiatric evaluation and recommended to have medications because he didn't um, he didn't go along with the vaccine program. The one thing that's clear is people who are not taking the vaccine, they have the strongest minds and they have the strongest uh, will. Many of them have the strongest bodies. So, uh, you know, the strongest people out there are not people taking vaccines or taking psychiatric medications. It, it should be clear at this point in time. All the analyses suggest the unvaccinated look far better in every single analysis, all-cause mortality, hospitalization, COVID reinfection, infections from other causes, the unvaccinated look like they're the winners. Have you have you any information about the new medical drugs like pills, which have the same effect like the vaccination? No, I mean, we have some new medicines in the United States, but they've been modest additions. We have Paxlovid, which is a combination of ritonavir and older Proteus inhibitor for HIV and nelfenpiravir, a novel chymase like three inhibitor. And then we have molnupiravir, which is a RNA dependent polymerase inhibitor. They're very modest. Uh, patients are, you know, are not reporting great results with them. Uh, you know, are, are the drug that's probably most dynamic, if we're going to use a drug, is ivermectin, but it has to be at the right dose 0.6 milligrams per kilogram per day for five days. And it's never been properly tested in a large conclusive trials. So we're really dependent on the observational data of doctors and their experience. You know, it, it's in court today that that uh, the FDA is being sued because the FDA tried to block ivermectin to the public uh, in their statements, saying that ivermectin should not be used. And the lawyer for, for the FDA yesterday said, oh, we, we didn't tell Americans not to use ivermectin. So the FDA has been caught red-handed uh, in wrongdoing, and so many Americans have lost their lives. So hats off to uh, Dr. Paul Merrick and Mary Bowden, Dr. After, who have had the wherewithal to sue the FDA and ivermectin. And I think what's coming out of the court proceedings here is going to be a massive flood of lawsuits against the FDA. Uh, you know, the FDA is not immune from lawsuit when they commit uh, malfeasance, wrongdoing. Okay. And do you have any information concerning the risk of infection of um of vaccinated people to unvaccinated people. So for example, I know cases where people who were not vaccinated get long COVID by being together with the people who are vaccinated. Do you have there any comment on that? Good question. You know, I just posted my Substack before I came on this interview and I feature a paper recently published by Benoon who's a former INSERM researcher. INSERM is a, a leading research institute in, in Europe. And Benoon lays out the reality, and, and I think she's right. I think people who take the vaccine actually shed messenger RNA onto the unvaccinated through uh, through secretions, probably oral and, and urogenital secretions. 
Um, and it's very possible they, sh they, they shed spike protein as well. But exposure to spike protein wouldn't be any different than exposure to spike protein with COVID. So it's probably just an immune re-challenge. So I'm not too worried about the spike protein, but the messenger RNA uh, from somebody else, you know, you, you know, I wouldn't want to get that in my body. And uh, recently, Hannah and colleagues has demonstrated the messenger RNA comes through milk from a breastfeeding mother into a baby. So uh, the questions are, uh, you know, how serious is this? Can someone actually, in a sense, be vaccinated by having close contact uh, to someone who has taken the vaccine to an unvaccinated? For how long should people stay apart? No one knows. I've been saying 30 days based on the available data, but maybe I should extend that longer. But I am concerned people are being kind of auto vaccinated from a vaccinated person to an unvaccinated person, particularly through very close contact, kissing and sexual intercourse. Thank you so much. I pass it to Grace. It was a real pleasure talking to you, sir. Thank you. Peter, can you please make a comment on the, um, if you have any thoughts on urine therapy? That's one of the um, alternative treatment that people are considering, especially those who have taken vaccine? You know, I haven't analyzed that at all. It's uh, unfortunately, we just don't have any conclusive clinical trials of detoxification at all. And so we're following this carefully. I mean, there's a one favorable preclinical paper from Japan on natokinase, but, you know, people immediately have re re remorse and they want to get it out of their body. And I'm not confident right now it's going to be able to be removed. And how about your thought on Fauci? I'm I'm receiving uh, questions from viewers. <laughs> well, he's given his uh, farewell address today. I found it notable on his departure notice on the NIH website. He doesn't mention COVID at all, as if the COVID pandemic never occurred. So I'm curious what he'd say in his his farewell address. I think America is going to be much better off without him in the public light. And the, the question is, will he be called for testimony? Will he ultimately be uh, found uh, to have committed wrongdoing or crimes? And, and will he pay any price for that? All that's going to have to work out through investigations and, and trials. And how about snake poison in vaccines? You know, venoms are used in medicine. We use the Russell Pitt Viper uh, time, and uh, venoms are used as uh, various drugs in cardiology, like Rediplace. Um, but I think the analogy of snake venoms to anything in this realm, they don't apply very well. And I, I think they've been confusing to people. So I, I stick to the peer reviewed literature and just, you know, cite the data, and I, I navigate that way. I think it's a better way to go. And basically, even if we don't know much about the urine therapy and other things, but it is so obvious, massive evidence, whether it's anecdotal research that we've been lied to, and there's really a massive uh, fraud. So, and since you mentioned about the, the practice of uh, nasal inhalation, clearing your nostrils, how about, can you share your daily habit for us? You know, I do use the um, the povidone iodine. Uh, there, there's a you can make your own one percent solution. It's very easy to do. There's a a, a solution that can be purchased, um, but I do it when I start to feel like I'm getting viral, and I just got exposed to something. I feel like I'm coming down. I immediately start povidone iodine nasal sprays and oral gargles, and I follow it up with gargling listerine. You need about a thirty second gargle, 
Most people, when they get a viral illness, they get a sore throat before they get the nasal congestion. So at that very early sore throat stage, we've got to start both the nasal washes and the oral gargles in order to abort the infection. In SARS-CoV-2, there's 12 clinical studies, three large randomized trials. Clearly, they help prevent the infection. And if one gets the infection, they make, uh, they make the person far less contagious and they reduce the intensity and duration of the illness. I, I think that's the best habit. I do take multivitamins once a day. I do take a supplemental vitamin D once a day. I um, uh, try to keep my body weight low. I, I'll go exercise. Today, it's a beautiful day in Texas. When I finish up, I'll go jogging a few miles, do some push-ups and sit-ups, and get ready for the next day of battle, bringing the truth to the world on COVID-19. And you, just like Jane, you also look healthy, Dr. Peter McCullough. Oh, I've, worked, I've worked with cardiologists that are really not healthy. And before, when I was still at the hospital, and they used, I used to tell them, I'll share them what I do so they can be healthy and they could take care of, of the patients. And, uh, and as Jane and you emphasized that early treatment, and I think I asked about the daily habit because that's so, so crucial because you never know what comes your way. Right. So like, in fact, for me, my daily habit is I just put a little water and salt. And this was before these last three years. And I sniff it and clean my nose, clean my other mm -hmm. nose. And, this, and I know other people from Africa when they have, they feel a little bit of sore throat already, they put a little baking soda in their mm -hmm. goggle and their vinegar. And so basically we can find how to update our daily habits and that's important. And then when you need more uh, help, there are now so many um, help that we can get online and through podcasts like this. So mm -hmm. please share where we can connect with Dr. Peter McCullough. Well, for the important things like nasal washes and gargles, uh, go to the Association of American Physicians and Surgeons, aapsonline.org, and get the home treatment guide. It's very, very useful. Uh, and, and everybody should have their home treatment kit. It should include uh, either povidone iodine or hydrogen peroxide, or there's other products like colloidal silver or xylitol. They all they all are work and beneficial. Uh, so always have something, a nasal wash and oral gargle. Have uh, zinc, vitamin D, vitamin C, quercetin, and then an over-the-counter um, antihistamine antacid called famotidine. That has an evidence base to it. Have that as a as a as a home treatment kit. I still get calls from patients saying, Dr. McCullough, I have COVID. And I said, well, go ahead and get started. Well, what do I need to go buy? So people are sick and they're going out trying to buy stuff at the store. So go to uh, aapsonline.org and get the home treatment guide. You can follow me at my website, petermccullohmd.com, and then that'll take you to all the social media. I'm active on social media. I think they're going to let me back on Twitter. I was trending yesterday at number two or number three uh, the whole day, even though I'm not on Twitter. And I think there's a big envy problem with Elon Musk since I beat him on Joe Rogan with the most downloads. Uh, so even though he has more money, I must be more interesting. He needs to give up the envy. Let me back on Twitter. Everybody wants me back on. And uh, and then go to America Out Loud Talk Radio, McCullough Report. Check in on Saturday and Sunday. I have a podcast. I interview people from all over the world. It's very, very popular. And that uh, goes on the podcast system during the week. Go to Substack. I've got 
a Substack, Courageous Discourse with John Leake. It's very well written, highly graphical. You're going to want it because it's got a lot of the key figures of the papers I cited today. And then uh, uh, pick up a copy of my book, Courage to Face COVID-19, CourageToFaceCOVID.com. It's a best-selling in viral diseases, communicable diseases, and true crime. And recently, the hard copy cover just came out, supported by the Children's Health Defense. It's a beautiful hard copy. You'll find it at booksellers and the airport and, and all over. I'm doing everything I can as a concerned citizen, as a doctor, to bring truth to the world. And thank you so much for having me on the program. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And you also have your Telegram group. I do have Telegram, but be careful. There's a dozen fake Telegram impersonators out there. So there's only one true Telegram account. So go to Getter or True Social and click on that one. That's the one that's uh, the real one. It's, it's called c19experts.com. Everyone else scam my name. I can't even control my name on Telegram. And it's, it's uh, when you click on it, you know, there are people in uh, the continent of Africa trying to sell, you know, uh, uh, ivermectin or something. So there's, and, and I, I've had a lawyer and, and get involved and I cannot get Telegram to take down the fake account. So social media is a very, um, you know, it, it's a very uh, a dark area of human activity. It's important, but it has a dark side to it. Yes, and thank you for reminding us to be careful because as one of our guests told us, as if they have allowed everyone speaking for freedom to go to Telegram. They've been slowly bringing us all there. So we have to always keep an eye on what we do and whom we're talking to. So we thank you everyone. And to all our viewers and listeners, please, please, please share this, subscribe, like, and feel free ask you know, ask us question. And if there's something that we cannot answer, I will forward it to Peter McCullough. But, you know, he gave you all the information where you can get in touch with him and with other um, groups and individuals that he truly respects. So in eternal joy and reverence and gratitude for the unceasing love and mercy of the one source most high, we end now this episode temporarily, but we explode all our love for all of you so that we could all be in alignment with the source. Thank you. Thank you.